Chapter 2, Part 2 of American Men of Action by Burton Egbert Stevenson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by William Tomko. The Beginners, Part 2. Although the continent of North America had been discovered by John Cabot in 1497, nearly a century elapsed before England made any serious attempt to take possession of it. Cabot's voyages had created little impression, for he had returned from them empty-handed. Instead of finding the passage to the Indies which he sought, he had discovered nothing but an inconvenient and apparently worthless barrier stretching across the way, and for many years the great continent was regarded only in that light, and such explorations as were made were with the one object of getting through it or around it. In fact, as late as 1787, opinion in Europe was divided as to whether the discovery of the New World had been a blessing or a curse. But Spain had been working industriously. The honor of giving America to the world was hers, and she followed that first discovery by centuries of such pioneering as the world had never seen. Her explorers overran Mexico and Peru, discovered the Mississippi, the Pacific, carved their way up into the interior of the continent, looked down upon the wonders of the Grand Canyon of the Colorado, founded settlements up and down the land from Kansas to Chile. Yes, and did more than that. They opened the first churches, set up the first presses, printed the first books, wrote the first histories, drew the first accurate maps. They established schools among the Indians, sent missionaries to them, translated the Bible into twelve Indian dialects, made thousands of converts, and established an Indian policy as humane and enlightened, once Spanish supremacy was recognized, as any in the world. The savages with whom Spain had to contend were the deadliest, the most cruel, that Europeans ever encountered no more resembling the warriors of King Philip and the Powhatan than a house-cat resembles a panther. They conquered them without extermination and converted them to Christianity. An amazing feat, and one which disposes for all time of that old outworn legend that the Spain of the 15th and early 16th centuries was a moribund and degenerate nation. But a change was at hand. The world moved, and Spain, chained to an outworn superstition, did not move with it. The treasure she drew from Mexico and Peru she poured out to prop the tottering pillars of church despotism, and the end came when, in 1588, Elizabeth's doughty captains wiped out the invincible armada, and dethroned Spain for all time from her position as mistress of the seas. It was then that English eyes turned toward the New World, and that projects of colonization were set afoot in earnest. And the one great dominant hero of that early movement was Sir Walter Raleigh. He had accompanied his half-brother, Sir Humphrey Gilbert, on a voyage to the New World ten years earlier, and, after Gilbert's tragic death, took over the patent for land in America which Gilbert held. It is worth noting that this patent provided in the plainest terms that such colonies as might be planted in America should be self-governing in the fullest sense. A provision also included in the patent granted to the company which afterwards succeeded in gaining and maintaining a foothold on the James. Raleigh spent nearly a million dollars in endeavoring to establish a colony on Roanoke Island, a colony which absolutely disappeared, and whose fate was never certainly discovered. 
and it was not until the virgin queen after whom all that portion of the country had been named was dead and raleigh himself shorn of his estates was a prisoner in the tower under charge of treason that a new charter was given to an association of influential men known as the virginia company which was destined to have permanent results on new year's day sixteen o seven an expedition of three ships carrying besides their crews one hundred and five colonists started on the voyage across the ocean under command of captain christopher newport among newport's company was a scarred and weather-beaten soldier who was soon to assume control of events through sheer fitness for the task and who bore that commonest of all english names john smith but john smith's career had been anything but common born in lincolnshire in fifteen seventy nine and early left an orphan he had gone to the netherlands while still in his teens and had spent three years there fighting against the spaniards a year or two later he had embarked with a company of catholic pilgrims for the levant intent on fighting against the turk but a storm arose which all attributed to the presence of the huguenot heretic on board and he was forthwith flung into the sea whether the storm thereupon abated history does not state but smith managed to swim to a small island from which he was rescued next day journeying across europe to styria he entered the service of emperor rudolph the second and spent two or three years fighting against the turks accomplishing feats so surprising that one would be inclined to class them with those of baron munchausen were they not for the most part well authenticated he was captured at last but managed to escape and made his way across the styrian desert through russia poland hungary bohemia and finally back to england just in time to meet captain newport and arrange to sail with him for virginia it is not remarkable that a man tried by such experiences should from the first have taken a prominent part in the enterprise an unwelcome part in the beginning for scarcely had the voyage begun when he was accused of plotting mutiny arrested and kept in irons until the ships reached virginia late in april the fleet entered hampton roads and proceeding up the river which was forthwith named the james came at last on may thirteenth to a low peninsula which seemed suited for a settlement the next day they set to work building a fort which they called fort james but the settlement soon came to be known as jamestown once the fort was finished captain newport sailed back to england for supplies and the little settlement was soon in desperate straits for food within three months half of the colonists were in their graves and bitter feuds arose among the survivors these were for the most part gentlemen adventurers who had accompanied the expedition in the hope of finding gold and who were wholly unfitted to cope with the conditions in which they found themselves of all of them smith was by far the most competent and he did valiant service in trading with the indians for corn and in conducting a number of expeditions in search of game it was while on one of these in december sixteen o seven that that incident of his career occurred which is all that a great many people know of captain john smith with two companions he was paddling in a canoe up the chickahominy when the party was attacked by indians smith's two companions were killed and he himself saved his life only by exhibiting his compass and doing other things to astonish and impress the savages he was finally taken captive to the powhatan the ruler of the tribe and according to smith's story a long debate ensued among the indians as to his fate presently 
two large stones were laid before the chief, and Smith was dragged to them and his head forced down upon them. But even as one of the warriors raised his club to dash out the captive's brains, the Powhatan's daughter, a child of thirteen named Pocahontas, threw herself upon him, shielding his head with hers, and claimed him for her own, after the Indian custom. Smith was thereupon released, adopted into the tribe, and sent back to Jamestown, where he arrived on the 8th of January, 1608. From the Indian standpoint, there was nothing especially unusual about this procedure, for any member of the tribe was privileged to claim a captive, if he wished. A century before, Ortiz, a member of De Soto's expedition, had been captured by the Indians and saved in precisely the same way, and many instances of the kind occurred in the years which followed but to the captive it partook of the very essence of romance he had only the dimmest idea of what was really happening and his account of it written many years later was of the most sentimental kind many doubts have been cast on the story and historians seem hopelessly divided about it as they are about many other incidents of smith's life certain it is however that pocahontas afterwards befriended the colony on more than one occasion and was finally converted, married to a planter named John Rolfe, and taken to England, where, among the artificialities of court life, she soon sickened and died. On the very day that Smith reached Jamestown with his Indian escort, the supply ship sent out by Captain Newport also arrived, bringing 120 new colonists. Of the original 105, only 38 were left alive, but Smith's enemies were yet in the ascendancy and he spent the summer of 1608 in exploration, leaving the colony to its own devices. When he returned to it in September, he found it reduced and disheartened. His brave and cheery presence acted as a tonic, and at last the colonists, appreciating him at his true value, elected him president. He put new life into everyone, and when, soon afterwards, Newport arrived again from England with fresh supplies, he found the colony in fairly good shape but the members of the Virginia Company were growing impatient at the failure of the venture to bring any returns, and they sent out instructions by Newport demanding that either a lump of gold be sent back to England or that the way to the South Sea be discovered. Smith said plainly that the instructions were ridiculous, and wrote an answer to them in blunt soldier English. Then, turning his hand in earnest to the government of the disorderly rabble under him, he instituted an iron discipline whipped the laggards into line, and by the end of April had some twenty houses built, thirty or forty acres of ground broken up and planted, nets and wares arranged for fishing, a new fortress underway, and various small manufactures begun. A great handicap was a system by which all property was held in common, so that the drones shared equally with the workers, but Smith took care that there should be few drones. There can be no doubt that his sheer willpower kept the colony together, but his credit with the company was undermined by enemies in England. Nor did his own blunt letter help matters. The company was reorganized on a larger scale, a new governor appointed, new colonists started on the way, and finally, in 1609, Smith was so seriously wounded by the explosion of a bag of gunpowder that he gave up the struggle and returned to England. Instant disaster followed. When he left the colony, it numbered 500 souls. When the next supply ship reached it in May 1610, it consisted of 60 scarecrows, mere wrecks of human beings. The rest had starved to death or been eaten by their companions. 
There was a hasty consultation, and it was decided that Virginia must be abandoned. On Thursday, June seventh, 1610, the cabins were stripped of such things as were of value, and the whole company went on shipboard and started down the river, only to meet, next day, in Hampton Roads, a new expedition headed by the new governor, Lord Delaware himself. By this slight thread of coincidence was the fate of Virginia determined. The ship put about at once, and on the following Sunday morning, Lord Delaware stepped ashore at Jamestown and, falling to his knees, thanked God that he had been in time to save Virginia. He proceeded at once to place the colony upon a new and sounder basis, and it was never again in danger of extinction. Though Jamestown itself was finally abandoned as unsuited to a settlement on account of its malarious atmosphere, but Virginia itself grew apace into one of the greatest of England's colonies in America. John Smith himself never returned to Virginia. In 1614, he explored the coast south of the Penobscot, giving it the name it still bears, New England. A year later, while on another expedition, he was captured by the French and forced to serve against the Spaniards. Broken in health and fortune, he spent his remaining years in London, dying there in 1631. There is a portrait of him, showing him as a handsome, bearded man, with nose and mouth bespeaking will and spirit, just such a man as one would imagine this gallant soldier of fortune to have been. While the English, under the guiding hand of John Smith, were fighting desperately to maintain themselves upon the James, the French were struggling to the same purpose, and no less desperately along the St. Lawrence. We have seen how Jacques Cartier explored and named that region, but civil and religious wars in France put an end to plans of colonization for half a century, and it was not until 1603 that Samuel Champlain, the founder of New France and one of the noblest characters in American history, embarked for the New World. Samuel Champlain was born at Brouage about 1567, the son of a seafaring father, and his early years were spent upon the sea. He served in the army of the 4th Henry, and, after the peace with Spain, made a voyage to Mexico. Upon his return to France in 1603, he found a fleet preparing to sail to Canada, and at once joined it. Some explorations were made of the St. Lawrence, but the fleet returned to France within the year without accomplishing anything in the way of colonization. Another expedition in the following year saw the founding of Port Royal, while Champlain made a careful exploration of the New England coast, but he found nothing that attracted him as did the mighty river to the north. Thither, in 1608, he went, and, sailing upon the river to a point where a mighty promontory rears its head, disembarked and erected the first rude huts of the city which he called by the Indian name of Quebec, or the Narrows. A wooden wall was built, mounting a few small cannon and loopholed for musketry, and the conquest of Canada had begun. A magnificent cargo of furs was dispatched to France, and Champlain and twenty-eight men were left to winter at Quebec. When spring came, only nine were left alive, but the reinforcements and supplies soon arrived, and Champlain arranged to proceed into the interior and explore the country. The resources at his disposal were small. He could not hope to assemble a great expedition, so he determined to make the venture with only a few men and little baggage, relying upon the friendship of the Indians, instead of seeking to conquer them, as the Spanish had always done. 
Champlain had from the first treated the Indians well, and it was this necessity of gaining their friendship that determined the policy which France pursued, the policy of making friends of the Indians, entering into an alliance with them, and helping them fight their battles. Champlain opened operations by joining an Algonquin war party against the Iroquois and assisting at their defeat startling at the same time a blood feud with that powerful tribe which endured as long as the french held canada in the course of this expedition he discovered the beautiful lake which bears his name he went back to france for a time after that and on his next return to canada in sixteen eleven began building a town at the foot of a rock which had been named mont royal since corrupted to montreal succeeding years were spent in further explorations which carried him across lake ontario and in plans for the conversion of the indians to which the aid of the jesuits was summoned missions were established and the intrepid priests pushed their way farther and farther into the wilderness to this work champlain gave more and more of his thought in the last years of his life which ended on christmas day sixteen thirty five among the young men whom champlain set to work among the indians was jean nicolet the year before his death, Champlain sent him on an exploring expedition to the west, in the course of which he visited Lake Michigan and perhaps Lake Superior. Following in his footsteps, the Jesuits gradually established missions as far west as the Wisconsin River. And finally, in 1670, at Sault Ste. Marie, the French formally took possession of the whole northwest. It was at about this time there appeared upon the scene another of those picturesque and formidable figures in which this period of American history so abounds, Robert Chevalier La Salle. La Salle was at that time only twenty years of age. He had reached Canada four years earlier and had devoted himself for three years to the study of the Indian languages, in order to fit himself for the career of Western exploration which he contemplated one day he was visited by a party of senecas who told him of a river which they called the ohio so great that many months were required to traverse it from their description la salle concluded that it must fall into the gulf of california and so formed the long-sought passage to china he determined to explore it and after surmounting innumerable obstacles actually did reach it and descended as far as the spot where the city of louisville now stands afterward exploring the illinois and the country south of the great lakes as well as the lakes themselves fired by la salle's report of his discoveries two other frenchmen louis joyer a native of quebec who had already led an expedition in search of the copper mines of lake superior and jacques marquette a jesuit priest and accomplished linguist started on a still greater journey with five companions and two birch bark canoes they headed down the wisconsin river and on june seventeenth sixteen seventy three glided out upon the blue waters of the mississippi a fortnight later they reached a little village called peoria where the indians received them well and continuing down the river passed the missouri the ohio and finally having gone far enough to convince themselves that the river emptied into the gulf of mexico and not into the gulf of california they turned about and reached green bay again in september having paddled more than twenty five hundred miles marquette shattered in health remained at green bay while joliet pushed on to montreal to tell of his discoveries marquette rallied sufficiently at the end of a year to attempt a mission among the illinois indians where death found him in the spring of sixteen seventy five 
Joliet spent his last years in a vain endeavor to persuade the government of France to undertake on a grand scale the development of the rich lands along the Mississippi. But the story which Joliet took back with him to Quebec fired anew the ambition of La Salle. He conceived New France as a great empire in the wilderness, and he determined to descend the mighty river to its mouth and establish a city there which would hold the river for France against all comers. Such occupation would, according to French doctrine, give France an indisputable right to the whole territory which the river and its tributaries drained, and La Salle's plan was to establish a chain of forts stretching from Lake Erie to the Gulf, to build up around these great cities, and so to lay the foundations for the mightiest empire in history. We may well stand amazed before a plan so ambitious, and before the determination with which this great Frenchman set about its accomplishment. In most men, such a scheme seemed but the dream of an enthusiast, but La Salle was in deadly earnest, and for eight years he labored to perfect the details of the plan. At last, on April 9, 1682, he planted the flag of France at the mouth of the Mississippi, naming the country Louisiana in honor of his royal master, whose property it was solemnly declared to be. That done, the intrepid explorer hastened back to France. A fleet was fitted out and attempted to sail directly to the mouth of the great river, but missed it. The ships were wrecked on the coast of Texas, and La Salle was shot from ambush by two of his own followers while searching on foot for the river. So ended La Salle's part in the accomplishment of a plan which, grandiose as it was, reached a sort of realization for a great french city near the mouth of the river was built and a thin chain of forts connecting it with canada where the french power remained unbroken for three-quarters of a century longer while not until the beginning of the nineteenth century when the royal line of louise had been succeeded by a soldier of fortune from corsica did the great territory which la salle had named louisiana pass from french possession end of chapter two part two Recording by William Tomko.